Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome to If I Ran Away From You, our series on the Beatles breakup. Out with the old and in through the bathroom window with the new. This episode is all about best friends and wives. Wives becoming best friends and best friends becoming exes. We've got laughs, drama, intrigue, and lots of opportunity. So if you're looking for a good time, you came to the right place. You know, if you break my heart, I'll go. As we approach the 50th anniversary of the Beatles breakup, one thing seems clear. Why it happened remains mysterious. It's time to revisit the evidence, pressure testing the old tropes and applying sensitivity and emotional intelligence to our analysis. Come with us on a deep, deep dive across several episodes where we unpack and examine the emotional roots of this complex topic. In a nutshell, we believe this was all a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The end game was never to end the Beatles or for Lennon and McCartney to separate as a creative partnership. We don't see this as primarily a battle for dominance within the band, but rather an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. Join us for this radical retelling of the breakup. I thought that you would realize that if I ran away from you, that you would want me to, that I got a big surprise. Welcome back as we continue with the story of the breakup. We pick things up in May of 1969 and follow John and Paul's actions leading up to the recording of Abbey Road. We see that each is grappling with being replaced in the other's life and expressing it in very different ways. John's endless rage and blame directed at Linda and her family versus Paul's insistence that John just fell in love with Yoko highlight the different ways that each dealt with the new situation. Characteristically, Paul's approach was to put a positive spin on things while John's was to lash out. In the first half of the episode, we examine how, despite the myth that Paul was hostile towards John and Yoko, evidence suggests that he was generally supportive of them. And despite the pervasive belief that John was indifferent to Linda, he was, in fact, quite reactive to her. In the second half, we shift our focus to Linda, whom we consider a major game changer in the Beatles dynamic, and is therefore important to consider in her own right. It was her strength that empowered Paul to advocate for himself and persevere amidst the worst pressures of the Beatles. And it was her spirit and faith in Paul that inspired him to embrace a new direction, both personally 
and professionally. So Paul himself identified the Liberty Bell as the sort of the moment when things became irreparable in his mind. Right. More more recently, in recent years, Paul has sort of spoken vaguely about this time when the band was breaking up and that it was very bad and hard for him. He says at some point he couldn't get out of bed. He was drinking too much. Right. And we know that one of the reasons that Paul does this is because he was cast as the villain during this period. And, you know, that when it's very confusing because when you look at contemporaneous comments about Paul, it's that he was so big headed. He was so egotistical. He was so full of himself, you know, so that's probably how he looked to people at the time. And he came off as the villain. And so one of the reasons that he has really emphasized and he had brought to life the fact that he was so depressed is to emphasize the fact that he had feelings that if right. he came off in this way as being unfeeling, it was because he just had a shell around him. He's finally, you know, willing to be vulnerable and say, no, this was a horrible period for me. And, and you know, the, the world has taken this idea and run with it. And yet when we look at Paul's actual behaviors at this time, we see that clearly he's suffering, but he's also acting in a very strong way. So no matter how much he's suffering, he's not going to let the situation defeat him. And it's, he's not going to change what he, his behaviors and what his beliefs are because of the fact that he's feeling hurt. Yes. And, and I think that this whole period and this whole breakup has been painted with broader and broader strokes over yeah. the years. Yeah. And it's turned into Paul was depressed and heartbroken and sad and desperate to keep the band together, whereas John was um, inspired and blissful and, like, so happy with Yoko. He was just changing the world every single day that he was alive, right? Right, right. Meanwhile, Paul, pathetic Paul, is, like, you know, trying to kill himself, right? (laughs) Right. The, The thing is that we've discovered that it, Definitely was not like that, you know. Um, there were times when John was super energized, almost manic, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And he was on a, a, a peace trip. <laughs> and there were times when Paul was very stressed out, sad, tired, depressed, drinking too much probably. Um, but we also know that like John and Yoko both had a heroin habit in 1969. And we have plenty of interviews with John where he sounds very depressed also. I mean, 1970, following Paul's departure from the band, was one of the absolute worst years of John's life. He spent most of it crying, (laughs) screaming. Yeah. I mean, Danov, you know, makes the point that he was just a giant ball of pain, you know, that, that his level of pain was enormous that he was almost non-functional and couldn't leave his house, had no defenses. You know, it, it's yeah. kind of like that's the state he was in in 1970, early 1970. And when is this? This is the time of the breakup. This is not a coincidence. Right. In other words, Paul is not carrying this emotional burden all by himself. John is hurting from the breakup, too. 
And when that's ignored or denied, it skews the story so much that nothing about John's behavior makes sense. Exactly. This idea that John, you know, just got bored with the Beatles and didn't care and was not emotionally invested is one of the most prevalent and destructive tropes of the breakup. Because the story as it is now is is just asymmetrical. You know, that this idea that Paul cared while John didn't. Right. Meanwhile, John's drug use and all of his erratic behavior is either sanitized or downplayed. Mm. And, you know, even his reactivity to Linda goes completely ignored. Right. And then all of John's behavior gets attributed to Yoko. Like, re- regardless of her relevance to the situation, <laughs> it's all about right. Yoko. It could have nothing to do with her, but it's it's definitely all about her because he only has one thought in his mind at all time. There's no real examination of him beyond that. It's just always assumed that he is a drone, a sex drone, or, you know, a peace drone, I guess, because the only thing he ever thinks about is Yoko. Or an avant-garde artist drone. Yes. (laughs) Avant-garde artist drone. (laughs) it's, It's worth assuming that he's a whole human being and that he might actually care about his own life and the things that are happening in it. Um, And it's also worth looking closely at Paul in this period, too, because he is not one-dimensional either. And all of his attempts to support John and Yoko in the face of the real confusion and disruption that they created to the band and to everyone around them have totally been glossed over. Yeah. In fact, that Paul supported them despite understanding that this was not in his self-interest as a bandmate, suggests that there is more going on here than has been understood. Right. And other less selfish motivations may be at play. Right. So this is what we're going to dig into now. But to put things into proper context, I think we need to look at one more vital piece of the puzzle that's repeatedly overlooked, which is the impact of Linda. You know, the the breakup is always analyzed in terms of John, Paul, and Yoko. But this ignores such a critical element, which is Linda and her impact on Paul. And, for that matter, John. Mm -hmm. Right. So so let's start unpacking some of these tropes. Um, First thing we have to address is the mythology around Paul's facial hair. (laughs) Right. Which um, seems to have taken on a life of its own. Indeed. In the Beatles story. Indeed. Okay, so Paul at some point said that feeling shitty in the divorce period was half the reason I grew the beard. And people have taken this to mean that anytime Paul has a beard, it means he's depressed. Right. The problem is, is that he grew multiple beards over the years, many of which had nothing to do with depression, probably had more to do with like style and ease and laziness that kind of thing, yeah. you know? So it's kind of like assuming all his bearded looks were reflective of a depression is it's just misleading and makes him into this like tragic character that he's not, you know? Yeah, but a lot of people like him to be that. Yeah, the the, the fandom has really embraced this idea. You know, it's, it's kind of like Paul with a beard looking sad is <laughs> sexy or something well he is sexy in that beard yeah well yeah i mean for some reason for some reason thinking he's going to commit suicide is a fucking turn on turn on for people yeah i don't know i i just want to dispel that i mean 
again, half the reason I grew the beard. And he's talking about that period in Scotland at the end of 69. Right. And he half the reason he grew that beard. And, Not even the full reason. Yeah. And he gives other reasons that he grew the beard at different times, you know? <laughs> because it's like fucking four degrees in winter in Scotland. And like they barely have running water. And he probably had like one rusty fucking right, right exactly and and you know what he wasn't seeing anyone i mean the only person he had yeah, exactly. to impress was linda she probably likes him no matter what kind of beard he's got so. well that's what i'm saying like if she liked it then what incentive does he have to shave it off well i suspect at that point i suspect she did like it because he grew up pretty quickly after she moved in with him you know like paul's the first beetle to embrace the beard the trend beard. Yeah. and it's funny because within two months john has a beard and yet that's his like freedom beard nobody comments on that beard no at all no crickets about that one yeah no th- this is the beard trope is one that i wish would die you know understanding that at some point he was depressed and didn't want to really wash or shave fine but but again, like over the years, every time you look at Paul's very happy Bram beard, I mean, that's just kind of like hot on the farm beard, you know? Yeah, that's right. And also, like, why isn't there a whole thing about his, like, triumph, triumphant victory mustaches? Right, right. He grows mustaches during, like, the most wildly creative times in his life. Like, he grew it, you know, obviously during Sgt. Pepper, and he grew it during McCartney, too. And... He grew it <laughs> right. like when Wings went to fucking Venice in the 1976 or whatever, 77. Okay, here's something Paul told Rolling Stone. He said, I was playing down a lot of the old Beatles image and getting a bit more to what I felt was me, letting my beard grow and not being so hung up on keeping fresh and clean. I looked different, more laid back. <laughs> so I guess he's hanging. He's he's easing into his inner dirty hippie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you get this idea that the depression period lasted for multiple years and they were in Scotland forever. (laughs) But when you actually look at it, I mean, Paul heads up to Scotland for basically the last two months of 69. And then he's back in, he's back in London. He's making his album. They're in the Caribbean. It's basically that, this this depression period was real and intense, but yeah. it was much more concentrated than one would imagine when you hear it. I mean, I'm sure the whole period for Paul was up and down. But by the spring of 70, he goes back to Scotland. And again, maybe that was a bit of a down period. But by late spring, summer, you get all Paul and Linda's beautiful shots of Scotland where, where Paul looks happy again. So, right. Well, and, and not to mention the McCartney album. Which right. is not a which is not a depressed downer of an album. I'm sure Paul legitimately went through this period, but then he got through it through making the album, which, like you said, shows a lot of joy and you know love for Linda and his family and mm-hmm. warmth. You can see him and recovering sexiness. and sexiness <laughs> exactly. And so, and you know, he says that that you know she encouraged him to do the album, and um, that did actually pull him out of that. So yeah. yes, he had a bad period. But then he got over it, probably had another pretty bad period after the announcement of McCartney, but then again went and recovered with Linda and got through it. Yeah, I would have a fucking bad time if like the press was running stories that I was dead 
<laughs> right. You it know? make you a little paranoid, especially if you smoked a few joints. Seriously. If I, yeah. I was just like, holy shit, my band broke up. What am I going to do now? And then all of a sudden they're like, Paul McCartney is dead. They're like, Jesus. <laughs> am I? Shit. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Well, there's that period. And then there's six months later when the whole world has decided that you're alive, but they hate they're you. like, oh my God, this garbage person <laughs> broke up the best band in the world. Exactly. You know, we've got this situation where Paul says this is a bad year for him. Really, let's have a look at the what these guys look like during this period, because it's kind of important. You know, there's a million photos of them. You can get a sense, right. at least well, their, yeah. their energy level, their expressions, you know, how well their Groomed personal hygiene, yeah. exactly, their personal hygiene, <laughs> whether they look like they've washed their hair in the past month, you know, that kind of thing. And they, they tell a story. Right, right. Well, it's weird. Sometimes Paul looks very good, and sometimes John looks like death. Like in summer, when they're recording Abbey Road, like John looks like garbage, and Paul looks really good. But like, for example, in May, which is this period we're talking about at the Liberty Bell, um, we did the research, and Diana pulled a lot of pictures and lined up all the dates and everything, and we actually find that Paul looks pretty bad before he goes on vacation in May. We noticed that during this period, specifically, I mean, Paul Scott is sort of, he says that he grew his beard when he went to uh, um, New York originally, uh, fall of 68, and they go to New York. And then he's got that for Let It Be. And, you know, so that was kind of a look. You know, you've got you've got George and Ringo commenting on it, that they like it. And he said he doesn't know he's trying it out. So that's a look. And then he shaves it for, his, you know, the wedding. And he looks okay during the wedding. But then during this period specifically, there's some pictures of him working in the studio where he's just, he's heavy, you know, he do, just doesn't look good. And then we see, you know, this period. he He's put on some weight, which is it's like not a criticism. Well, no, I mean, just, if he looks fat and happy, then great. But yeah, exactly, is, yeah. exactly. But we think maybe, you know, maybe that means he was drinking more than usual around that time of April and May, which seems to, you know, as he put it, that's like when the, the, the bell cracked. So it's right. definitely like not a good time. We do know that the Beatles did agree that the Eastman's would be their, uh, I think their lawyers and you've got Klein coming in. Yeah, I guess at this point he's John's manager. And so there's this battle about management, which culminates with the uh, Liberty Bell. And we've got the shares issue going on. We've got the story of Klein berating Paul in the studio Mercifully, they decide that they're all gonna that they're gonna go on vacation, or at least John and Paul, and you know John and Yoko, and um, Paul and Linda, right? Both go on their respective vacations, not together. <laughs> <laughs> no, although I would like some film of the four of them on vacation. Oh my god, that would be like an anti-vacation. It would be like the worst. The hell, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Paul doesn't look great during the Liberty Bill period, but but just wanted to say that he does look better when he returns a month later, you know, which reflects that yes. time when he's with Linda and Heather and away from Klein and Apple, you know, it seems to do a lot of good for his state of mind um, because, which is really beneficial because then he comes back and gives his full attention and focus to Abbey Road and to credible results. Those pictures in Corfu are some of his like hunkiest pictures. They are. It's funny because he, uh, when he goes, he looks 
heavy. And by the time he, by the end of the vacation, he is looking like an Adonis or a Bond coming out of the water. So I don't know what Linda was doing, but it made him happy. So I want to yes. go on vacation with Linda. And it's a good thing too, because then he came back and kicked ass with, um, with Abbey Road. So that, that vacation did him some good. So right before they go on vacation, Paul gives an interview. You know, it's interesting to look at the interview that he gives because clearly they've been working a ton. You know, he references all these things. And in some ways, like, they're working more than ever, these guys. I mean, we know that Paul's a workaholic, but it seems like everybody's working like crazy at this period. Yeah. And, well, uh, John is on TV every fucking day, so. Right. Yeah, it's true. Like, John's giving nonstop interviews. I mean, he's working at being famous. Or he really he's is. working at making Yoko famous. I don't, you know. No, he's, he's working at making them, them famous. Exactly. It's not necessarily... Yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily about their art. It's about their political stance and they're right, giving right. a lot of interviews. So anyways, Paul gives this one. And we know that Paul does not like giving interviews. And, and actually, Derek Taylor said this at the time that John and Yoko would give an interview to anybody in the world. And everybody in the world wanted to only speak to Paul because Paul had stopped giving a lot of interviews. He was fairly elusive at this period, but he gave this one quick interview. And he does sound... A little bit tired. Where are you going for holidays? Going to France. Try and get a bit of sunshine. He's, yeah, he sounds exhausted. He's sort of crankier at the beginning, but he, he kind of relaxes and does his bit. And then, but when he's done, he's like, all right, I'm done. Like he goes for 15 minutes and then he's like, okay, that's it. Yeah, there, there's no sprawling, you know, two and a half hour interviews oh, about God. what's going no. on in the world and his point of view on politics with Paul. This was, you know, clearly he had agreed to do an interview to promote whatever they needed to promote. Or Well, and here's the other thing is I think that um, breakup rumors have been sort of circulating and growing throughout. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, as we said, that's what actually supposedly um, motivated Dick James to want to get out of, you know, the, his shares. So, yes, there had been some rumors about this happening. Yeah. So I think he does address that. The Are you guys still friends? You know, are you still together? Is everything okay? From what you hear about us, you'd think we've gone potty, you know. But I tell you, you know, just as four people, we're really, we're, we're all right, you know. There's nothing seriously wrong. You, you remain friends, or, or on the surface anyway, for, for a great length of time. Is there yeah. really this bond of friendship between you, would you say? Yeah, sure there is. Yeah. Um, you know, because we're each other's mates, you know, I mean, uh, and we've come through all of this together. We've been together now for 40 years. <laughs> so, I mean, you can't help but be friends. Anyway, I mean, I, I, they're my three best friends. You know, they're good lads, I tell you. Right, and it's, it's interesting because this is after the Liberty Bell, and he's still reinforces his friendship, you know, that they're all his best friends still. And yeah, he's still loyal to them. Yeah. He's still extremely loyal to them, no matter what. I mean, he, he dates the break in his mind, the Liberty Bell, but you know, either he's still a little bit in denial or else he just still loves them and isn't willing totally to give up or he's just yeah. loyal to the group at this point. Or he's just loyal, you know, in public. Yeah. I also wonder if he's maybe doing this because that fight probably was upsetting for all of them. 
And I mean, obviously, I think the most devastating for Paul. But, you know, he may be trying to find some to, yeah, some way to smooth it over a little bit. Like communicating with them a little bit? Right, right. He's communicating with them, just, you know, giving a shout out. They're still my best friends. You know, I, I, I won't go with Klein, but I still love you guys, you know. So there may yeah. be a little bit of that, too. So he's specifically asked about the weirdness, meaning John and Yoko and the crazy stuff. Um, you know, people are like, you know, we well, like to send, why is he with this Japanese woman? I think he's almost kind of like tacitly acknowledging that there might be a little bit of anti-Japanese vibe to it. Sentiment. As well. Yeah. The interviewer asks in sort of an, uh, an oblique way. Yeah. Cause he's like, what about all the crazy shit that the Beatles are doing? And he's like, I know what you mean. Yeah. You're not talking about my naked album. (laughs) No, it's true. And so then he goes on to defend them, actually. He does. And he. And explain them. Explain them. (laughs) That's the funny part is is, is he explains their love. If I may turn for a minute to your personal lives, the Beatles have come in for a lot of criticism about things that have happened in their personal lives. Do you think it's all been justified? Have you felt about it when you've had these criticism? The criticism's okay, you know, because I mean, people, you're allowed to criticize. Uh, see, the thing is, uh, our whole thing on the surface of it, sorry, I mean, because you, you know, you read about us in the newspapers, hear about us on interviews and stuff, all of that, on the surface of it, you know, I, I understand why it comes in for criticism, you know, because the, I'll tell you one thing about us, we've never been dishonest. So that, for instance, if John, you know, because I, I know you're talking about John and Yoko mainly, you know, most people, so if John... Uh, you know, sort of marries Yoko and uh, divorces Sin, a lot of people think, well, he's just mad, you know, because he's gone off with this mad Japanese girl. And uh, it's, instead of Cynthia, you know, he's a great girl. But the, the truth about it all is that uh, he, loved, he loves Yoko, you know, and so that, like, whether you like it or not, I tell you, he said one thing to me which made me understand what they were up to, you know, uh, just as two people, not, not as anything else just as two people. Uh, he just said, I tell you, it's like hand- holding hands on the back row of the pictures. And I suddenly realised they're not freaks. You know, they may look like freaks and they may... Because, I mean, he says that, you know, Charlie. He says, well, it's too bad, you know, if I look... I, you know, if we look like this or people think we're funny or people think... It's too bad, you know, this is how we are and we're very straight. Because they are really. They're, they're two great people, you know, and they're very much in love, you know. So you can't say anything more than that. You know, it's interesting because Paul... He's sort of suggesting that I get why everybody finds them confusing, but he, as usual, he's defending them and trying to translate, you know, their love to the public, right? Yeah. No, no, no. I get it. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I, I, <laughs> I get the I get the confusion. I had it too. Yeah, but but I finally, you know, John finally said something to me that clicked. And it's funny because I was saying almost the same thing to you recently when we were discussing this. The feeling I get off of Paul from that anecdote is he's he's saying, oh, okay, okay, well, that makes me feel better. I, I get it now, I think. I think the fact that he's attempting to explain them to the public suggests that their image was a bit maybe confusing to people. <laughs> well, I mean, in fairness, they're – Sending a few mixed signals, like they invite reporters to a bed-in after making a naked album cover and then profess to be shocked that reporters expected them to be sexual in the bed-in. Right, right. 
or like expected them to be sexual in the black bags. Like, yeah, can you believe these perverted reporters. You know, you're like, what do you what? I, OK, I give up. I don't know what to think of you guys. Right. Right. Like John describes them as angels in the bed in, which is, you know, more innocent, closer to the idea of two virgins. But it's also closer to how Paul describes them here, which is evocative of the romance of young love. You know, when you find someone just like you, who gets you, I think that 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 description of them is more apt than the one that is constantly thrown at John and Yoko as being this hypersexualized couple um, that, you know, that has obliterated John's mind and all he can think of is, you know, Yoko's crazy sex appeal. Yeah. and and, And I'm not sure exactly what it's based on. Because it's not really how they describe themselves, no. and it's not how anyone describes them. No, it isn't. And, and and that's the thing, is they continually say that, you know, the love is the holding hands and somebody there to stroke your hair, where as writers, you know, spin it into maybe something that's more exciting to them. Yeah. My issue with this characterization is it's so often used to explain John's behavior, which it doesn't because being horny does not radically change your personality. (laughs) Hopefully not. (laughs) Right. And yet, like, rather than put in the work required for thoughtful analysis, authors just attribute everything to Yoko's, like, Mm -hmm. magic sex powers. Magic sex powers, yeah, including all of John's art and music. Now, it could be partly because they did a naked film and they you know he did his lithographs of them having sex so you know those two proof points probably are like well clearly well he did draw some sexy pictures that's true but what sex video did they do or sex no the, the the video about john's dick but that has nothing to do with her no but it's naked like you know, and well, also, she she, just, she filmed it. Isn't it just like twenty minutes of him getting like half heart? Like, yeah, like it, it takes him twenty minutes to get his fucking dick hard, and then it's like this little dribble of cum comes out or something, <laughs> and then it just like, it's like that's the whole movie. Everyone's like, "What the fuck is this? Why are we yeah. watching?" This? You know what? I know, but it is kind of hilarious that that's their their kind of movie like i i appreciate the fact that it wasn't dirty it was just some weird lame half erection well that's what i'm saying it's like their sexy stuff is it's like anti-sexy it's like the opposite it's like two virgins like and that's kind of the rock and roll part of it is that it's not sexy at all that's the point of it it's true and maybe that's getting to you know that's a different issue it's like stripping off clothes getting you know to the the basics if you want to talk about it, you know, from an artistic angle or whatever, it's about things that are hidden. And she talks about that. She talks right. about like Bringing hiding our into- bodies and like, yeah. Yes. And like that, that was kind of behind all of their public nudity. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, of yeah. Putting it all it out enough there. itself. So, yes. it's, but, but the point is that it's divorced from sexuality and zero authors ever get that or ever make that <laughs> point. They make the opposite point. Yes, They're like, yes, well, this exactly. proves that they were mega fucking horny for each other all the time. And it's like, it kind of doesn't actually like, I think you kind of missed the point. Like the thing is, is if it's not a porno, what point are they making? You know, what, what ideas are they subverting? 
I, I mean, I think the most radical part of the situation is that she's controlling the gaze and, you know, he's willing to be the subject. I mean, the thing is, is that clearly they enjoy exploring ideas together, which, you know, seems to turn them on. <laughs> but in doing so, they kind of confused everyone around them. It's not weird that Paul was confused because they were confusing, you know? Yeah, that's right. So, like, in terms of messaging, they're, they're sending sort of mixed messages because on one hand, they're like, look at all the sex stuff. We're super yeah. out there. We're pushing the boundaries. And then they're just like, oh, my God, we're just babies. We're just babies. Don't expect us to ha- be having sex. Why Ew, would you think gross. that? Yeah, exactly. They're just like, we love each other. and We're just going to hold hands. And I, I don't know if that's on purpose or if it's just... I don't, I, I don't know. It's very odd. And then, the, and then they love to talk about each other. Like we're actually both very shy. We're super shy. <laughs> we would never have approached each other. I know. Well, well it, it's like you guys are the the biggest exhibitionists on the <laughs> planet. What are you talking about? The the other interesting thing here is that it seems like. Paul, he's sort of endorsing John and Yoko here. He's saying, no, 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 they're cool. They love each other. It's all good. Don't worry about them. Just accept them. Um, I know they're weird, and I know something seems off about them, but but here's a good way to think of them. They're like teenagers (laughs) in love. Does that work for you? Does that? Let's just go with that one, okay? And again, it contradicts the notion that Paul was jealous and unsupportive. We've probably all been in a situation either with a friend or a sibling or a family member or a child or whoever, but they're dating somebody awful and they're like, you just are jealous. Like, that's always what I get off of John. You know what I mean? It's like how a teenager responds. No, John, like, we don't like her because like she's got a bad reputation and she introduced you to heroin and she's alienating you from all your friends and family she's not nice to us actually in in tony bramwell's book i just read this recently and it it really kind of struck me he was talking about the filming of the let it be and when george quit and george getting mad about yoko being there bramwell says that everybody was hoping that john would basically come to his senses any day. Well, and he also says he regrets the fact that nobody was open to John about what they thought, that they all kind of thought this would be a passing fad. But that's actually kind of not true, right? Because George did. I mean, George went up and said, he said, listen, she's got a terrible reputation. And Bob Dylan specifically said, stay away from her. Yeah. I mean, John even told that story later. I don't know why he told that, us that story, but I guess he thought George would come off looking bad. But Right, but it instead gives us some information. Yeah. Yeah, there were, there were legit reasons they didn't like her, but it was based on her behaviors. You know, we, we do have accounts from people who were around at the time and observed the situation. Barry Miles was a friend of Paul's, but he was also very friendly with John and Yoko, and he ran Zapple, which was the spoken word and variety arm of Apple. You know, so he was enough of a, an insider to observe. And, you know, he comments on the situation in his 2015 book, The Zapple Diaries. And I'll read a couple of excerpts. He says, and this is a quote, as Der- Derek Taylor pointed out, they didn't hate her, but they didn't love her either. 
And then later he says, the real reason that people disliked Yoko was because she ordered them about and sent them on errands in a particularly rude way. And finally, he concludes with whether Yoko was ever aware of the disruption her presence caused to the Beatles' working practices, I don't know. Some people thought she was so involved in her own work and self-interest that she didn't notice, as others thought that it was a deliberate ploy to separate John off from the other Beatles. And that she walked around Apple as if she owned the place. And, it, you know, as George Harrison said, she would walk up and say, Beatles do this, Beatles do that. Right, and so there was a little bit of a disrespect. Miles points out that's how she treated the staff of Apple. Like She just talked to them like servants. And for someone who's not your boss to come into your office and fucking order you around to do stuff, like, no. Yeah, yeah, you can see why people didn't embrace that. Listen, the point of all this isn't just to dump on Yoko and say she's a terrible person or anything. I'm sure that she got some grief that was undeserved at times. Yeah, I'm sure there was some racism at play. And, you know, that's legitimately awful for her. And right. for them as a couple. Being a traditional conforming woman in the 60s was hard enough as it as it is, right? But the point is that both things can be true. Right? right. I mean, she can be in a racist, sexist society which of course she is because we, yep. we still live in that world, right? Yep. Absolutely. But she can also be rude and disruptive. <laughs> like those can both right. be happening at the same time. That's the point. I'm sure Paul was not 100% perfect. And he even says he wasn't 100% perfect. Here he is in 1986. I'm beginning to see it a bit differently now. I'm beginning to see a lot of what they say is their problem, not mine. A lot of the time... And in John's thing, you know, when, when as you, I mean, you, you obviously know, he was going through a lot of pain when he said a lot of that stuff. And he felt that we were um, being kind of vindictive against him and Yoko. In actual fact, I just answered a question on the American TV thing. I think we were quite good looking back on it and knowing people in life. Many people were just down tools with a situation like that. He just said, look, man, she's not sitting on our amps while we're making a film. Do you know what I mean? Right. You know, that most people would just say, we're not having this person here. Don't care how much you love her. But we were actually quite supportive. Not supportive enough. You know, it would have been nice to be really supportive because then we could look back and say, weren't we really terrific? But looking back on it, I think we were okay. I think a lot of the time, John suspected meanness where it wasn't really there. Oh, he's presumably very paranoid. I think so. So Paul contends that he was okay. And the evidence suggests that that's true. He might, apparently he might have written a passive-aggressive postcard that sort of was like, you guys suck. But other than that, like, there's literally nothing. There's nothing. He gave them a place to stay. Yep. Um, he co-signed two virgins. He put his name on the cover. He went into Sir Joseph Lockwood's office to go to bat for them to make sure that Sir Joe didn't yell at John. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like he's he's defending them to Mo to Michael Lindsay Hong. Yeah, and you can actually see some documentation of Paul's plans for Apple, and he's got like projects for John and Yoko uh, written on them. So he's got you know, like he's supporting their creative projects. But we literally have Yoko talking into a tape recorder saying, Paul's being super nice to me. And he's like trying to include me. 
and asking me if I know a sound guy or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then you've got this interview that we're referring to where, again, he's, you know, explaining them to the world and saying they're cool. And, and I let me just ask, do you think that that John would have dropped everything and helped Paul record the ballad of Paul and Linda? <laughs> and been you, like, yeah, make that our next single. Oh, my God. The thought of that is so ridiculous. I mean, it's almost inconceivable because he did the very opposite. He forecasted the demise of their relationship at every opportunity. Yeah. Uh, But to your point that that later, the story is that, you know, he had to start, John, John and Yoko started heroin because of the way they were treated by Paul and the crew. And there's literally no evidence. There's no evidence of that. And so, this jumping onto this story is serves some emotional purpose for John. Well, you know, my feeling is that John wants Paul to be jealous. Right. Because that's really one of the desired effects is that he's hoping that Paul will react and show how much he cares. And I think if Paul is accepting of them, I mean, that might be infuriating because then it would be like, well, don't you care? Aren't you going to fight? Or maybe also it could be to feed John's self-perception as a victim, right? So that absolves him. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's probably fairly accurate based on what he says in interviews in the post-breakup time, you know, that, that, that seems to be how John saw himself, you know, as the hurt, hurt party, the victim. Yeah. And I suspect this sense of being the victim was created long before the breakup. Yes. Yes, for sure. The John sort of talks about this later. It suggests that he felt like he gave a lot more and was more invested and cared more and was hurt by this. It's like um, when people have an internal autobiography. Yes, an internal story, yeah. And they will massage events to conform to their pre-existing autobiography. Yeah, I agree. And again, I do think it is important to to remind ourselves when we're thinking this through that this is, John himself tells us this is how he saw himself at the time. And Paul, you know, Paul has said in interviews that he was jealous at first. Which yeah. I think he said that from sort of a more mature perspective that, yeah, I was jealous at first when, you know, somebody else was in the studio and Yoko was taking of up course. John's time. But then I came to like her and accept her. So based on those types of comments and his actions, it, it seems like there was like a tension in Paul's thinking that he's really of two minds. You know, part of him wants what's best for John, mm-hmm. which includes having a happy romantic relationship. But at the same time, he seems to want to maintain their creative partnership and, you know, doesn't understand why there is now a conflict of interest. Why, when you're in love with this woman, does it mean that we can't continue? Right. And, and she's not helping you write songs and you guys don't sing together. So I don't really understand what this has to do with me. I do think that we've got the, the, this tension from Paul, like, I want what's best for you okay, if you're telling me you're so in love, then I'll support that. But I wish that it didn't have to impact our partnership. For sure. 
I think Paul feels that way until the end of time. I legitimately think that he feels that all throughout the 70s. He still wants to be friends. And he's like, can we please not like we have an amazing thing together. Please let's not throw that out because of this. Yeah. And I mean, I admire that the fact that he understands they have an amazing thing and, you know, is willing to overlook some personal hurts because he understands how great the partnership they have and the magic they have as creative partners is. Yes. But I think John is hurt and offended by that. Right. I, I I mean, I think that's a really important point. But he thinks that that means Paul doesn't care. I think what he wants is to see some real fucking emotion from Paul, you know? Like, I think that he might want to see yeah. Paul react in the way that he feels. Yeah, I think th- I think he always wants that from Paul. I mean, I think that's what John wants from everyone, <laughs> but specifically from Paul. Is to show that he cares. Yeah. And he wants, like, real emotion, yeah. So this explanation that John had to leave the band because he fell too in love becomes the story that Paul tells the public. And I'd never know if Paul really believes it or he just wants to believe it. You know, he just says it because believing in it is better for everybody. You know, it's better for him to believe that John is happy with Yoko and fulfilled and that it's really what John wants. I mean, that's a better story for Paul. He sleeps better if he believes that. If John isn't deeply happy and completely fulfilled with Yoko, then all of this was for nothing. Yeah. He destroyed the Beatles and Lennon McCartney for no reason. Right. So, of course, Paul wants to believe he's happy. Or it's just a waste. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's the major reason that Paul loves that story and embraces that story. On top of that, I think there may be an additional reason, which is that it might really hurt Paul to even entertain the idea that maybe John was reaching out to him and giving him an opening. Because if that's the case, then Paul let him down. Because he didn't do anything about it, you know? I mean, well, what could Paul have done, though? I mean, I think that's the conundrum. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the sort of loop that goes on in his mind. You know, should I have done more? Is this why he was mad at me? And then he reverts to the fact that, well, John said he was in love. You know, so if he buys the John and Yoko love story, it absolves him. You know what I mean? It's just like... Yeah, and it's all for the best. It's all for the best. It's all for the best because at the end of the day, everybody got what they wanted. Right. So the romantic in Paul loves that story. And he doesn't have to beat himself up for not doing whatever he could have done. Mm-hmm. But he's willing to accept this explanation and stick with it. And that none of John's acting out had to do with him or that he's responsible for anything. I think that Paul finds that story more palatable. Yeah. I wonder if another secondary and much less important, but secondary reason that Paul may have backed off um, is that he recognized John's need to rebel at that time, you know, in a, a way that Paul just wasn't into. Like, it's not what he needed as an artist at that time. But the kind of putting it all out there 
two virgins, let's get naked and just be yeah. like, fuck off. You don't get our genius if you don't like our yeah. film about my dick. Take your yeah. Emmy and shove it up your ass. Yeah, there's a bit of a rebellious, like, fuck you, I don't care attitude. He says later on, and like, sure. whenever he says it, like a year or two later, that John just needed to be rebellious. Maybe he feels badly that he didn't want to do that or wasn't willing to do that with John because it really wasn't where he was at. Paul's rebellious in his own way. Yeah. But it wasn't in that same kind of like, fuck the establishment. Here's my dick. Take a picture, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that very, very specific John Lennon yeah. way. <laughs> you know, there's something almost childlike in Paul's acceptance of them. And John is getting increasingly angry that Paul won't face what's underneath John and Paul's issues. Don't you yeah. think? Yeah, I do. I think that he's not really willing to look at what John is so upset about. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, people talk about. You know, Paul is a, he's in denial. He's a whitewasher. He's optimistic. You know, he likes to paint everything in the best possible light. But, um, I mean, one of the things that I think he's possibly in denial about is John's feelings for him. Absolutely. Well, and well into the eighties. I mean, until after John's death, he's still trying to figure shit out. I mean, I suspect Paul knows that he and John have a bond that's fairly extraordinary and also undefinable. But I think he also understands John's need to be in an exclusive and symbiotic relationship with somebody who will put him first, that will love him most above all others. Because for the most part, that's the situation they've been in for a long time. With each other? Yeah. But I also think he knows that John needs to be with someone who will give him everything. You know, and as extraordinary as their relationship was, it wasn't everything. And Paul just gives in and says, okay, you know, maybe she can give you everything because there's a limit to us. Because they're not lovers, you mean? Yeah, exactly. That They're not a couple. And so you can see that with Paul's constant focusing on the fact that John just fell in love, like the romantic part that he couldn't do right. for John. That So he focuses on that. So I think that that's kind of you know, his, his excuse for, well, I know this is what John needs. He needs somebody who will give him everything. And maybe if that's what John needs and Paul can't give it, then it's nobody's fault. Right. Right. And I think at the end of the day, this breaks John's heart because even though John may not know what he wanted from Paul, I think there's a yearning there for something. And I think you know, at, at the end of the day, he just wanted Paul to never let him go. And and that's why we keep talking about John wants Paul to fight for him. Yeah, to be wanted. To be wanted, to know that Paul loves him enough to never want to let him go. And Paul's like, I love you enough to let you go. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the really heartbreaking part is... I think eventually John understands that, but I think he doesn't understand that. I suspect, based on his behavior, that he doesn't understand it at that that time. Yeah. And I also think that's Paul's coping mechanism, is 
you know, he's trying so hard to let go because he loves John and he realizes John needs a fulfilling romantic relationship. And so he lets him go and supports him. And even if hurting John is the opposite of what Paul intends, John nevertheless ends up hurt. And here's the thing. We know from multiple sources that John was in a lot of pain at this time. And nobody really asks why. You know, like we get these twin stories of the fact that John was so inspired by Yoko and so excited by their new life. And then we get this secondary story that John was in so much pain. And then there's a total abdication of an exploration to what might be causing this pain. And John's explanation that it was because the Beatles were being mean to Yoko doesn't hold water. No, well, that you know, that's what we've just gone through is the fact that, you know, realistically, their treatment of maybe it wasn't as enthusiastic as he would have loved, you know, by all accounts, once there was some adjustment, you know, they were fine to them. So that wasn't the issue. Right. And when you're head over heels in love with somebody, it doesn't matter. No. What your friends think. No. You know? No. You would just kind of say, like, well, fuck you guys. Right. Well, I don't know what your problem is. She's amazing. So. Yeah, that's the thing is, is that there's so many inconsistencies in these stories that we kind of accept. I mean, if John's so in love and happy with Yoko, then, yeah, he probably should just be like, oh, and not really Why care. Why does he care? Yeah, and not care. But he doesn't. He cares so much that he complains he had to start heroin. Now, I don't necessarily think that, that, that <laughs> they're the reason for him. Like, they didn't drive him to heroin. That's John, John's own internal pain about something about the situation, I believe, does bother him. <laughs> right, right, right. I just don't think it was they were being so mean that they had to do heroin. I think that the hurt is he's, you know, throwing this blanket reason for the hurt that really doesn't explain it that well right it it doesn't and it kind of circles the issue because if what he's saying is it was hurtful to me that paul let's just use paul because was it ringo no yeah that's driving him to do uh heroin no yeah like let's not mince words okay um if he's taking heroin because he's so devastated and hurt that Paul doesn't love Yoko, then like we need to examine that. Like, why do you care so much about how Paul feels about your wife? Make that make sense to me. What you're really saying is like, you're taking heroin because of Paul. That's exactly right. There's something connected to Paul because uh, Dan Richter, their uh, heroin buddy, he says that, you know, John, John used it as an escape from the pain of the situation with the Beatles and, and, you know, the treatment of John and Yoko. But essentially, I mean, what's underneath that is there's something about emotionally that's so devastating him about the situation with the Beatles. And we know that John claimed Paul hurt him more than anyone in his life, right? Not Julia, not Alf, not Yoko, but Paul. Yeah which clearly reflects how important Paul was to him. Yeah, because if John had simply lost interest and rejected Paul, then, you know, Paul would not have the power to hurt him like this. 
especially since, from what we can tell, Paul never inflicted any tangible damage to John whatsoever. Right. Which means that the hurt stemmed from something private and interpersonal. Right. Right. And Paul's supposed rejection of Yoko just doesn't explain this level of hurt. Well, um, even if they were being bitchy, most people survive an unenthusiastic reception from their friends about their new boyfriend or girlfriend without resorting to hard drugs. Yeah. I mean, driving John to heroin would suggest that Paul and George are just relentlessly, severely bullying John and Yoko. It, right. it perhaps wasn't the most loving embrace. Well, and, and she wasn't embracing them lovingly. So well, that's what, that that's what I mean. Like, it, yeah, you know, it's just worth thinking about, like you said, that if he's taking heroin, maybe it's partly to do with his strained relationship with George, but probably it mostly has to do with Paul. Well, and, and every author tries to suggest that George was John's number one best friend at this time. So no author would suggest that John is doing heroin because George is treating him like garbage, yeah, right? Yeah, true, true. I mean, how many fucking sides of your mouth can you talk out of? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I mean, God almighty. Now, one of the things we mentioned in our last episode that tends to get either conveniently overlooked or deliberately ignored um, in this story is John's extreme emotionalism during this period. Right. We talked about John being on what I called a peace trip, and um, we know John and Yoko gave 10,000 interviews right. um, in this year, and we discussed John's manic, must-be-on-TV-every-day fame addiction, but mesmerizing as that may be to some people, um, it doesn't <laughs> really tell the full story of what's going on, because there is a flip side. And in fact, we see some wild swings in his moods and behavior Yes, during this time. And I think we've got two examples that, that really highlight... The fact that John, as much as authors want to portray him as this fully in control guy, uh, he's behaving hugely emotionally at this time as well. Here are two incidents from this period, from this Abbey Road period. Uh, um, they're not dated, um, but they're both from 1969, prior to the divorce statement. And they're from the book McCartney by Chris Salowitz. One evening, after the other three Beatles had long since driven up in their expensive vehicles, John could be made out, pacing up and down the front steps, gazing with increasing impatience along the route that Paul usually took. Suddenly, he was called to the phone by George. Then he was seen racing down the front steps and running as fast as his unfit body could carry him in the direction of the McCartney residence. Paul had called to say that he would not be coming into the studio that evening, he and Linda had realized it was an anniversary of their first meeting and had decided to have a candlelit romantic dinner at home. Arriving outside 7 Cavendish Avenue, John, like a man possessed, clambered over the tall security gate. When Paul responded to the thumping one of the front doors by opening it, John pushed him aside, rushing in and screaming at Paul for his thoughtlessness. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, th- I, I think this is a great example of John just being extremely emotional. Yeah. And and it also reflects how incredibly important Paul is to him in, in making music. It's not like he's cool with just proceeding without Paul, as they do in Every Road without George, uh, without John. Well, that's to anyone who's like, oh, well, he should have been outraged. How dare Paul cancel? It's like, yeah, um, John didn't show up numerous times, so that's not even an issue. I mean, to me, this is more of an example of how reactive John was. Like he basically (laughs) found out (laughs) and was so pissed off that he ran all the way, climbed his wall and then shoved his way into his house to go and scream at him. I mean, this is not a in control man. That's crazy. No, no, no. That's, that's crazy. Some of the girls that stalked Paul's house told this story. It was probably high drama. I mean, John comes running down the street. It's alarming enough to to see any man who is emotionally distraught running towards you. Like that, it's true. Yeah, honestly, like that is alarming and frightening. Well, I mean, you're like, oh, holy shit. Who's that guy? There's some guy running towards us. Oh, fuck, it's John Lennon. <laughs> you know what I mean? It says in the text, like a man possessed which you have to be to sprint five or six city blocks. Oh yeah. You got to be you got to be pissed off. But to me it sounds like something set him off. Like it wasn't just being canceled on. There was something about it. And like I think that's kind of the implication of the story too because they put in the information that Paul had canceled because he's having a candlelight dinner with Linda at home. Like he, like well, he, he didn't cancel because he had had a root canal that day. Right. Right. John might have, you know, gotten over it if that was the case, but to him, this was um, unforgivable that that was the reason. So much of what John gets upset about that year is in some ways tied to Linda. We've tried to demonstrate this. That you look at the pictures that Linda takes of John. He does not perform for her. He does not smile. If you want to look, see a look of hate in John's face, look at some of Linda's pictures of him. But beyond that, again, he puts her down over the years. He writes he, that and, insane letter to her. Oh, yeah, that's right. Where he, again, forecasts the demise of their marriage. Can, can one imagine Paul John reacting well to Paul doing this? No, they're treated so differently. It's, it's insane. It's it's, it's like joke. John exhibits the world's craziest behavior when it comes to Paul and Linda, and yet it's written off as John doesn't even think about Linda. What John <laughs> care? No. Oh my God, it never crossed John's mind. Oh my God, it must kill authors to admit that John has insane beha- jealous behavior when it comes to Linda because they don't ever mention it. I mean, we're not even going out on a limb here. I mean, it's just clearly crazy behavior. Yeah. Again, when you're over somebody, you really just don't pay that much attention to them. Well, and that, uh, you know, if John is so disengaged with the Beatles by 1969 and Paul cancels, he'd be like, fine, fine with me. I had a better things to do anyway. Clearly, John still cares a fucking lot about yeah. Paul being there, about Paul supporting his music, about Paul choosing him over Linda. Yeah. 
you know, if John was annoyed and he was like, God damn it, McCartney, if I could waste my time, I came in here, I canceled a thing, you know, yeah. whatever. If he picked up the phone and called him back and was like, hey, asshole, next time let me know before I make the drive. You know, if he said that or something, that would be normal. I wouldn't take issue with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, no, it's me neither. That's it's, normal. It's this, like he has so much fury <laughs> that, that he's sprinting six blocks and climbing like a seven-foot gate or whatever. It, it's, it's that he has to physically interrupt the candlelight dinner i i think that's what it is picturing them there having their fucking stupid stupid dinner that's interest an interesting point actually when you 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 know now that you bring this to life it's like that he wants to interrupt like if he's going to be devastated by paul not being there he's going to make sure that paul doesn't have a nice night either that's right and, you know, there's lots of accounts from that summer of things being highly emotional. You know, that they, they get in the studio, they work well together, but the meetings were, you know, Paul talks about it all the time, how awful the meetings were. I honestly feel like Paul went and had to retreat from, to recover from the devastation of this is infighting. And again, you know, we think it would have been very, very hard on Paul to have been the one on the outs with the other three. However, John's behavior during this time seems, you know, that he was not in control of his emotions at this time. And we have another example of that from the same book. So here's the second one. Late one afternoon, the Apple Scruffs were gathered in front of three Savile Row, the eyes and ears of the world, having learned that all four Beatles had arrived for a meeting in John's office, which faced the street. The girls had a clear view of what was obviously a formidably bitter argument. As the arm-waving grew more frantic and the already twisted grimaces turned even more distorted and ugly, there was a sudden flurry of movement. Linda McCartney had been saying something to either John or Yoko. Now John was leaping towards her, his clenched fist about to land a punch. Only the lightning-quick intervention of Paul, suddenly slipping between them, saved Linda from the blow and John from the remorse with which he would have inevitably been burdened. Okay. Well. Okay, so this story is sort of a minefield of issues. The thing is that we don't have a lot of detail to this story. Like, for instance, we have no idea what they were talking about. And even though, even though like I believe it and it seems plausible enough, it was observed from the street through a window. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? Right. So like, you know, all they saw was they saw them arguing. They saw John like sort of cock his fist, so to speak. And then they saw Paul get in the middle, you know? So I don't know that we can conclude that he actually would have, taken a swing at her, yeah, you know? Yeah. I agree. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I agree. So yeah. great assault basically is <laughs> to this story. Yeah. We don't know what was going on in John's mind. We don't know that he was really going to, what he was going to do. He could have just been moving in a way that they interpreted, you know, misinterpreted. However, I do think there's a couple of things that we can maybe take from this story. And one, yeah, yeah. one is the fact that, you know, th- this is, Another example of the fact that John was getting really worked up, you know, he's highly emotional Yeah. at this period, during this period, you know, that he was probably reacting in ways that he didn't mean to. And the other thing is that 
it seems to be his anger and his reaction seems to be targeted Linda a lot. You know, she's sort of yes. the target of yes. his ire in this scenario that they observed. That th- Those two points are consistent with everything else that we know. So to me, that all rings true, you know. Right. I mean, I think it's interesting that, you know, this is a John-Linda dynamic. And I think it's interesting that their relationship has been totally ignored in in the whole story of the Beatles. Like, it's like those two never spoke or had any interaction, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, but they, they do have an interesting dynamic, you know, where mostly she seems to trigger him, you know? Well, it seems like there's a lot of friction, but it's entirely one-sided. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of odd. Yeah, I mean, we don't have any examples of Linda being really angry or displaying jealousy or anything like that towards John. So, yeah, it just, like you said, it it does seem to be one-sided. And, you know, we we can only speculate why. Although John, as much as their relationship is ignored, John actually does talk about Linda a little bit in the 70s. Well, well, that's what I was going to say is that they're observed by a number of people in the 70s. And all of them describe Linda as, like, friendly and affectionate towards John and John as being irritated, irked, and bothered by her. Right. Like all of them. It's true. Consistently. Yeah. I know. I kind of wonder why, but I kind of think that Linda's just like, well, whatever. You know what I mean? Like she's not, yes. she's not going to be bothered by it. She's just like, that's John. I personally suspect that he blames her. Well, and, and actually we've got evidence of him saying this in the seventies. He blames her for Paul's, behavior, you know, specifically regarding Klein, you know, his willingness to not sign with Klein and his independence from the group, you know, like he was always independent, but at this point he's being really strong. And so I suspect. Oh yeah. John thinks that he, that she's brainwashed him. That's right. The thing is, is that if John, like later on, he says that, you know, he'll get back with Paul when Paul gets out of his relationship, you know, that, God help you, Paul, in your relationship. You know, it's kind of like this idea that Paul has been brainwashed and when he gets out of it, that they can be, you know, that they can get back together or whatever he suggests that it will be. You know, what's interesting is that John seems to project a lot of the things that people say about him and Yoko onto Paul and Linda. Yeah. I mean, the most obvious is the, his line in How Do You Sleep, right? And, and, and Connolly actually comments on that. He's like, oh, I think you may be talking about your own difficult wife, you know? Yeah, there's that. But the, also, like, the what you just mentioned before of, like, um, once you get out of it, like, like, Paul is under her spell. Yes. Like, that type of thought. It's like... Where does, where is he getting that from? I don't know because nobody else says that, you know, no one else has ever said that. Whereas a lot of people, to your point, a lot of people say that about John and Yoko. So that like does seem to be a thing. Whereas John exactly projects that back at Linda at Paul and Linda's situation. I think that maybe Paul's behavior is different and all of a sudden he's not trusting and listening to John and I'm sure that infuriates John and also that you know there could just be just jealousy issues I mean you know certainly nobody's been shy about throwing Mm -hmm. the idea of jealousy 
onto Paul, but specifically later on, John complains about the fact that, you know, he wasn't loved and he wasn't getting the attention and Paul didn't care. And, you know, it's kind of like all these complaints that he throws at Paul. And it may be the fact that he feels like he's not getting those things from Paul in the way that he used to. And Paul seems to be giving Linda all of these things. Yeah, he's just jealous that Paul loves her and is it is so committed to her. And I think from John's point of view that he committed to her so quickly. <laughs> Again, ignoring ignoring him and Yoko. I mean, you know, completely the same situation, but I mean that's that's the hilarious and astounding part of the whole situation is that he treats Paul like the fact that Linda came out of nowhere. John, you guys started your relationships at the same time. <laughs> Why is Paul's brand new and out of nowhere and yours isn't? Well, in fairness, I guess Paul and Linda didn't move into John's house. That's true. That is true. So if they would have, he's like. Well, you were having a relationship with her away, you know, away from me. away from my prying eyes. So therefore, it's brand new, and I because I didn't know about it. Although, I had the decency to bring my girlfriend <laughs> into your house and then bring her to the studio every single day, so you didn't forget, <laughs> like a normal person. <laughs> How dare you romance this woman in private? Right. Well, along not with- on TV like a normal person would. <laughs> And, and, you know, the point of us highlighting these is that, you know, now we know the story that Paul was very hurt, that he was depressed during this period. But again, we've got a lot of support for the fact that John was every bit as emotionally devastated. And in fact, in some ways, much more out of control. You know, he also broke Give Peace a Chance that year. Yep. You know, he also had held a bed in and like, you know, talked about peace. And was very lucid then. He actually sounded great and looks great in the bed bed-ins. I mean, John is always lucid when he's lucid. No, I and I think your your point is actually an interesting one that John seems to be much more up and down that year. Whereas Paul, we see some sadness, we see he sort of recovers and, you know, is comforted by perhaps Linda and the family and with John, we see so much up and down. He's almost polar in terms of his being manic and then being very down at some time. One of the things that we probably should consider is the fact that John could have some chemical imbalances that are either directly attributed to taking heroin or you know, could be on top of the heroin, which certainly the heroin wouldn't have helped. He does seem to be addicted to the positive feedback when he's on TV talking about things with Yoko, like there is a positive reinforcement of that fame that he's getting. And then we see that sometimes John crashes and is very low and demonstrating real insecurity about his talents and and real paranoia extreme paranoia, especially about Paul and people thinking Paul's the talented one and everyone giving credit to Paul. And so there just there is a bit of a wild card factor that right. has to be has to be taken into consideration as well. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, and that is John's drug use, you know, which probably compounded his already volatile moods and reactive emotional states. So you may have two things where John is 
all of a sudden in a fine mood the next day because he's either been on heroin or on it and feeling good. And so then he seems fine. And then, you know, and then there could be a chemical crash at a different time, you know? So there's just an additional element going on that we really can't control or read into. And so, you know, anybody who's saying that John had lost interest. I think that's just an easy out for authors who are trying to make sense of this. And it's like, that is not good enough. And it, and no. it's, it hasn't been good enough for 50 years. Stop telling the same tired, thoughtless, brainless story. Right. The absolute dumbest takeaway from, from all this is that John was acting decisively. That is the single dumbest thing I've heard. Decisively. And he was disinterested. You know, the opposite of love is not hate, it's disinterest. And that's the one thing that John does not show towards Paul or the Beatles ever. Ever. We just discussed that Paul is dealing with the loss of John by convincing himself that it's for the best, it's what John needs. And so, you know, we see from Paul a sort of a letting go and a sadness. Um... And he targets all of his anger at Klein. But, you know, John is different. And I think John's way of dealing with the breakdown of the partnership is through a wounded rage, which, you know, he really targets at Linda and her family. You know, when you think of where this rage goes, we've just detailed that a couple of incidents and it, it seems to continually be Linda and the Eastman's. But also that rage eventually lands on Paul himself fundamentally we think because Paul walked away right right it's not the 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 opposite that is often suggested which is that John was just raging to to get out of this relationship with Paul yeah that's the interesting thing is many authors will concede that Paul really really truly loved John in a genuine and and healthy way and yet they claim that John is desperate to get away from him it makes no sense like they get the rage part right it's like they you know it's like his rage at his mother the rage at his mother is not because he's dying to get away from her it's because she let him go I think the fandom and authors many people are able to sympathize with John's situation and get his pain Like they always go back to his childhood, which I think does have a lot of roots in in his behavior. But the thing about that is it manifests in his other important relationships. And nobody makes that connection that, you know, John doesn't want the most important people in his life to walk away, I suspect. Yeah, that's it. It's like it's like Julia, you know, going with uh, fucking Twitchy. Even though Julia did not necessarily choose Twitchy and her new kids over John, (laughs) that emotionally it may have seemed like that, you know. And, you know, John makes that those kinds of comments about Paul throughout the 70s. And somehow it's been missed. Yeah. He says, like, Paul chose his family over me and (laughs) and no one takes a crack at that. They're like, well, that doesn't mean anything. He never thinks he, about Lennon. He must have been dying to get out of that Lennon-McCartney relationship. Right. Well, it's right. like, why? Because he sabotaged it? Like, it's natural for a child to, like, push against their parents, you know? Yeah. He tests 
And I think Paul knows that he tests, but then at some point he becomes confused that maybe this isn't this isn't a test. Maybe this is what John wants. That's right. I think Paul at some point is just like, I don't, I don't, you keep pushing me away and I don't, am I, do you want me to walk away? It's true. And he does it. Like, are you sure? Are you sure? And then finally he does. Finally, finally he does it. And John never forgives him. And the problem is, I think that John realizes that Paul is able to do this in some ways because of Linda. You know, there's been so much that has been said about Yoko. Oh my God, so So much. About Yoko's influence on John. And yet, I am astounded by the impact that Linda has on Paul. And it really isn't celebrated. You know, in one way, they don't make as big a deal about it. But I just think that (laughs) Linda was a game changer in the Beatles dynamic. Because all of a sudden, Paul, who's been very devoted to the Beatles, devoted to John, you know, he's always been the one that has been there. And he's always, you know, been very in love with his girlfriend, but she's been traveling. So he's had more independence but also maybe less security at home. All of a sudden with Linda, he's got somebody who's on his side and sees him. I mean, I'm sure Jane saw Paul as his own star, but you know, you've got Linda coming in and just adoring Paul for Paul, you know, and she clearly loves the Beatles. She's, she's a little yeah, different. Yeah, she's than, very supportive. She's different than Yoko in that, you know, she's trying to keep them together. There, she doesn't. You know, she's not trying to separate them for her own benefit. So she's working to try and keep the Beatles together. She also knows this is what Paul wants, right? Yeah. But I, I just think that all of a sudden, Paul's got somebody who's a hundred percent on his side, that really enables him to be independent. She sees him as his own adult, his own great artist. Right. He continually associates her with freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, with fun, with escape. Yeah. With independence. And, you know, those are all very positive things in his mind. Linda's unbelievable. She's like, yeah, I know everybody thinks I should get a makeover, but fuck that. I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. And I like me the way I am. And Paul likes me the way I am. And that's all I care about. And I think she was just such a grounding presence for Paul that it does, we don't care. Don't, it doesn't matter what other people think, which must have given Paul such, I think when he talks about freedom, it's like emotional freedom to not care so much. Oh yeah, for sure. So he likes to tell the story about getting lost, driving around and getting lost, which we touched on in the, when we spoke about two of us. Mm -hmm. And the other story that he likes about when he first got together with Linda is that Paul sometimes would get kind of stressed out about not not doing something. Yeah. I mean, he had a lot on his plate. So when you're that busy and you're that hyper and you're that creative 24 fucking 7, mm-hmm. you know, it's stressful if you have downtime, right? So, you know, he tells the story of where he would... Apologize to her. Apo- yes, exactly. Like, apologize to her for like, oh, can I just sit here for a second or whatever? And she would say, it's allowed. I mean, that's huge, though, because he says that he was basically trained to be on 24-7. 
And you can see that this is his natural inclination is just to work and work and go and go. And even that interview that we just played us uh, an excerpt from, he sounds tired and he lists all the things they're doing and it's extraordinary. You know, they're just like, they're working on so many things. The, you know, dealing with the finances, dealing with their negotiation, right, you know, re-recording on a second album, you know, running Apple. It's just like, they're crazy. He says that he learned to appreciate life again and find joy in the small things of life, which is everything, you know, and, and that's what his yeah. m- music of the future sort of that's ref- exactly right. reflects. Yeah. But the fact that this probably would have hit Paul worse than anyone else, just given the fact that he's such a workaholic, he drives such um, a sense of identity from his usefulness, clearly, because he's such a workaholic, that for him to not have work would just probably have been even the more devastating, you know? And so Linda, you know, we can see how she would be an incredible tonic. You know, I think that people didn't necessarily, I mean, I must admit to being one of them. It's like, why wouldn't Paul have chosen another high-performing, you know, beautiful, stylish actress that was his, as flashy as him? And it's like, that's not, he needed somebody who was complimentary to him, not... His yeah. equivalent, not in competitive terms of, to him, not competitive. Which I think that Paul and Jane were competitive. They're yeah, both flashy. They're both very smart. They're both performers. You know, and I'm sure that created a ton of attraction. But at the yeah. same time, they don't seem to be able to relax together. So Paul tells a story that he says is one of his favorite stories about Linda, which was that when they first got together, and then they were in New York City and were walking home after a dinner. I guess he said something that annoyed her or they were arguing and she stops in the middle of the street and gets really angry and puts him in, you know, tells him off and puts him in his place. And I think that he is saying that she was tough. There was nobody, I'm sure very few women stood up to Paul. And here's a woman that actually put him in his place and said, you're wrong. And he said he had to apologize and say, yes, I'm wrong. And he needed, I think that Paul needed somebody who was that tough. Yeah. And you can see that Linda's never afraid of John. She's like the one person in the world beyond Paul who has yeah. no fear of John. No fear. Of well, John. and Jane Asher. Oh, that's right. Jane, <laughs> Jane and Linda have zero fear of John, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that is important too. That means that Paul's, for all of John's craziness, he probably has somebody at home that's just going like, oh, Paul, that's just John. You know what I mean? And sort of yeah. making it seem a little less scary. I mean, I think that Paul knows how to take John, but when John's going, John went fairly nuts for the next couple of years. It probably was really helpful to have somebody that saw through John. Yeah. And doesn't find him threatening in any way. No. I mean, she's the one that writes John letters, like, like simmer right? down, simmer right. down, John. Right. Right. <laughs> which which sets him off like crazy. He's like, who the fuck are you to be writing? Get your husband to write. And she's like, fuck no, I'm writing you. You're pissing my husband off and I don't like it, which is phenomenal. So and, amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And you know what's one other thing is that something like, I think from the beginning, Paul saw Linda as an artist as well. And Paul, for his whole life, is proud of her as a photographer and an artist. Yeah. Not as a musician. That's a secondary thing that he does so they could they do so that they could be together. 
But as a photographer and an artist, you know, she comes in and takes those spectacular photos in the White Album. She takes the best photos that we have from Abbey Road and, you know, from in the studio. And thank God we have those. And then she chronicles their life in, in Scotland so beautifully. To be able to do that, you have to have a sensitive, artistic, creative soul as well. And you can see how yeah, of course. that would have been a, a tonic for Paul as well. You know, he's maybe he's having to withdraw from John and from the band. But it's not like he doesn't have somebody that he also can communicate with on a very creative level. And she was an artist that was doing, you know, it's a huge thing that she was the first female to have a photo on the cover of a national rock magazine, which was Rolling Stone. I mean, she did that before she and Paul were a couple. And that's pretty extraordinary. I mean, even huge. To, to this day, you know, rock photography is hugely sexist. So she yeah. had already sort of broken some glass ceilings on her own. She got into the Sgt. Pepper, you know, promotional party based on her photos. So, you know, she had a good career. And by the way, <laughs> she's an amazing photographer. Yeah. Her work is in the Victoria and Albert Museum now, you know? Honestly, like, that should be one of the most known facts about the Beatle wives. Absolutely. You know what? It's such, can I just say, it's such bullshit that they called her a groupie, you know, wannabe, you know, John sort of. For decades. Yes. For decades. And it's like, meanwhile, this woman has gotten her, her photograph on the cover of Rolling Stone in the 60s when she's a single woman, you know, which is phenomenal. Seriously, like, they took this successful artist. Badass. Badass. This badass bitch. And they turned her into, like, a charmless groupie. Well, oh like a conservative God. wife that was a groupie and just looked up to Paul. Meanwhile, she's this badass woman that, again, single mom that was making her own way. And they got her photograph on the cover of the major rock magazine in the world's probably most sexist or one of the world's most sexist industries. I mean, like how, uh, how impressive is that? And how much of a turn on must that have been? Well, that's, that's interesting because that's the thing is that's when Paul meets her or gets together with her for real, she's doing these things on her own. He's not making her, she's doing these things on her own. She's got tons of connections on her own. And again, the fact that she gets into the, um, Sergeant Pepper party is insane yeah. to me. She's the only woman there. And you know what? There's different stories about how she got in, but all of them are based on the strength of her photographs. Portfolio. It's like, yeah, yeah. Based on the strength of her portfolio. And I mean, how amazing do you have to be? It's like everybody in the world wants to be everybody who's a photographer or a journalist wants to be. Well, she that took party. amazing photos. She took amazing photos of that day actually she earned all of it i mean the you know the hers are yeah far and away the best pictures from that press comp from that little press party at brian's house right because she got them to do something interesting and that's that's the thing that's that, her talent that's her talent yeah and capturing really interesting moments getting people to do interesting i mean that's what you want and she sees people too 
Yoko was also a woman in a male dominated field. And obviously she, she struggled too and was incredible in her own way. But Yoko is given credit for being an artist. I mean, it's talked about all the time. And Linda is not, which is why we want to address it here. Again, it's like her artistry and her talent has been so undermined, but it's so fucking cool when you actually look at who she was and why he would have been attracted to her. There's a lot of stories from a lot of different musicians in the 60s that she knew, actually, that really describe her as being, like, not just, like, attractive or, you know, but, like, sexy, but, like, like fun sexy. She really sort of enchanted guys, and it wasn't because she was, like, dressing slutty, no. sticking her tits out, you no. know, like... <laughs> That's um, the funny thing, is the description of her is, like, long, weird dowdy a-line dresses you know but man thought right. she was enchanting yeah because she was cool as shit yeah i think that's the thing is that she was attractive she was sexy in her own way but her personality and her center of gravity was just like super interesting and hot and and she was chill well here's the thing too is that linda is such an introvert that and I think that she really connects with people, but she's not she's not a performer. Like she's a photographer, yeah. which is such a different skill. You're an observer and you're an yeah. artist. And you're capturing other people. You know what I mean? And that's very different than when I know I happen to a lot of professional photographers, and the thing is is that none of them like to be in the spotlight because they're comfortable right. making the picture. You know, sort of being in control of the story and the observer. And that's the problem is that she wasn't particularly charming or comfortable with the spotlight on her. It's just it wasn't where she wanted to be, but she was thrust into this position. (laughs) Well, she married like the most famous person on earth. Right. But I, (laughs) I mean, she did know that. So yes, I think she was super attracted to the fact that he was very powerful and she, she makes the point that he was creatively powerful and, you know, and the fact that he had Magritte's and like, she makes the point that Paul was very different than what she thought he would be like. And I think that she was very, she said the fact that he painted, he had Magritte's, he was much more, he had so many creative solutions that I think it was a huge Mm -hmm. turn on to her. But plus, that's he was the, very powerful. Yeah, well, that's the experience of everybody who gets into ball, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're all like, "Holy shit, I didn't, I didn't know." Right, he's a lot more impressive. I thought he was the than, cute one. Yeah, they exactly. Told me he was the fucking cute one. And... <laughs> I didn't know he was the powerhouse creative one too. Seriously, yeah. as it turns out, he's like kind of a, a moody mad genius. <laughs> yeah, <know>? eccentric. <laughs> yeah. Not that we know him. I think that, uh, you know, Jane Asher was from a very sophisticated, cultured family. But I think that because Linda wasn't properly packaged, I don't think that she's ever been given the, um, you know, the respect and sort of the understanding of how sophisticated her upbringing was. 
I literally think that that is based on her appearance because she's not flashy and she didn't wear makeup. And so people thought she was a hick. Right. Whereas, you know, we were joking at is really, you know, the sign of the very rich, (laughs) you know, is, is to be very dowdy. They don't care. They don't like flash, you know, like Linda's mother was an heiress. She wasn't the Eastman. She was, you know, an heiress of a department store chain and her father was a self-made man, but they grew up with some of the most famous artists in the U.S., at their house, you know, I think apparently her mother was an incredible hostess. They had huge houses in, in New York and Fifth Avenue yeah. in, Scarsdale. you know, Scarsdale and the Hamptons. And, you know, so Linda really was living at the top of New York society. And not only that, you know, it would be one thing if her parents were just rich, but she was surrounded by artists her whole life. So she would have had access yeah. And an understanding of their life, their lifestyles. Yeah, and a, and a good art education, right? And you know, and as opposed to the rest of her family, which was scholarly, she, she identified more with the artists. And I just think that, you know, Paul Linda coming into Paul's life, you know, almost would have had a much more sophisticated view than even a Jane Asher, who's an actress and her parents are well educated, but Linda's used to the entertainment industry and very, very prestigious artists. Yeah. I mean, liking rock and roll was a, was a rebellion for her. Right. And so her desire to let's flee to the country. I mean, I think that she offered Paul, like he probably trusted her and understood that kind of her upbringing was much more glamorous and sophisticated well, obviously than his, but was glamorous and sophisticated and that she understood sort of, you know, that she had had enough of the good life to turn her back on it and say, no, let's go live in nature. Yeah. And she, and she said like her, her childhood fantasy would be just like getting on a horse. Yeah. No, she talks about like her dream is having to ride out for provisions or something, which, <laughs> yeah, is, right? is, which is basically their Scottish lifestyle. I mean, it's, it's so extreme. true. I'm sure he was like, oh, shit. I got to show you something. (laughs) (laughs) I think I have something you might like. He's like, I have weird secret fantasies like that too. And then everyone else thinks they're stupid. But I mean, how much fun for him that, you know, that the two of them could sort of indulge each other's fantasies and live like that. I mean, there's a lot of safety in being able to live like that, knowing that you can fly. Oh, for sure. Luxury luxury living when you want to. Like you said, they pretend to be poor for like half the year or whatever. Like (laughs) like, literally just go out and live in squalor and like hang out with each other with like a fireplace and live on nothing. But yeah, manual labor. Exactly. Manual labor, horses, kids, you know, music. I mean, it actually sounds pretty spectacular. It actually does. It's a pretty hot fantasy, actually. I I can totally understand the appeal of it. It's very romantic, too. Right. Very romantic. romantic. But I just think fundamentally, that they don't have the same drive to make Paul and Linda into a famous couple at that point, you know, now. No, I don't, I definitely agree. I, I, but I think her, after her death, you know, celebrating her, 
art and promoting her as a, as an artist, like that's a different thing. Yes. And even the Paul and Linda love story at that point is a different thing because they did stay together their whole lives. And I think that the public hated Linda for so long that it's kind of a, you know, that they wanted to, to turn that around and celebrate her and resuscitate her, her reputation, you know, and her critical reputation. So that was something else, but they don't seem to have been driven in 1968 when they got together. No. To build the the Paul and Linda story. To mythologize to, their great romance. Exactly. We don't see any examples of that. And that suggests that there's something different going on with Paul, specifically. He doesn't seem to have the need to eclipse John or replace the Lennon part and Lennon, Lennon and McCartney. You know, he just doesn't seem right. to have to do right. that at that point. And he doesn't, throughout the rest of his life, he does not compare Linda to John. Like one, nope. the, one of the things that we continually say that bothers us is that Paul is always pulled into the John and Yoko love story. And I think the, the authorship mistakes that as Paul being invested in fighting for John. Rather than seeing it for what it is, a reflection of John's point of view of Paul, of the importance of the role that John gives Paul in his world, which is not only creative partner, but also pseudo-spouse. And Paul just doesn't do this. He allows Linda and John to occupy different roles in his life. I mean, if Paul was always comparing John and Linda, would it mean that John and Linda were equals or competitors? Would it mean that John was competitive with Linda? No. So let's not assume when John does this, that this is how Paul feels. The advent, the influence, the importance of Linda should not be underestimated because he trusted her, which I think drove John crazy. She was tough. She wasn't afraid. And she brought with her a powerhouse family. Well, and one of the things that you've talked about a lot and detailed is how John having a new identity that he had built with Yoko, you know, served a few different purposes for him, but was a really good safety net at the end of the Beatles, you know, and like, it was very smart of him and very reassuring, I'm sure to have that in place at the end of the Beatles. And we sort of talk about how Paul didn't really do that so much in terms of like public, you know, a public persona that he could, you know, uh, pivot into real quick. Like he didn't have a brand as we put it. Right. 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 So the benefit of John doing that is that he has a future, you know what I mean? Like if he's really concerned about the Beatles, then he's got something on his horizon that he knows he can jump to. Right. Exactly. Like if they go poof, you know, out of nowhere, he, he's got something, he has an alternative, he has a plan B. He has a plan B. Whereas uh, Paul hasn't really put that plan B in place. But I think what we find is that he is carving out a new identity for himself with Linda. It's just that he waits until the Beatles are over to do it. Right, right. We see that John is channeling, sort of building his own brand with Yoko during the first, you know, eight or nine months of the year. Whereas Paul channels, I think, he channels everything into the music of the Beatles at this time. You know, he's not 
right. building out his private brand. But to your point, I think that without even knowing he's doing this, they are starting to develop, you know, in the development of their relationship. Yes. He's starting to develop his brand. And I think it was a less strategic, you know, and a more yes. natural development. I I hundred percent agree, but he does, you know, by nineteen seventy, he sort of he emerges from a chrysalis. Like right. you know, he he's just like a timid butterfly spreading his wings, but like he's full bloom by ramp. Right. He's emancipated. He is. Yes. Yes, it, there is it, the new Paul. That's right. That's right. But it is at this point it's embryonic. <laughs> But it's true. It, it's true that she was there for him and they had their relationship. And he says that, that, you know, that having the family was hugely important to him. And, you know, we see some interviews with him in, in, you know, September 1969. And the only time he sounds happy is when he's talking about the family. Yeah. Um, but. But I so still he, feel like I feel like in this at this period, though, this period that we're stuck in right now, this hellhole. Yeah. Of 1960, like mid 1969 or whatever, like sort of the middle of the year or whatever. I personally feel like Paul's sort of treading water. Well, he, well, he does. You know what? As we've discussed before, I think he puts everything into the music. He gives it his all. He, you know, leaves it all on the floor. And I think by the end of the summer, when that's done, that could be when Paul has a dip of what's next. You know, John, we'll see, you know, we will talk about how John actually has sort of built out a brand. However, he has some major lows at this time as well. But at least he has sort of carved out, like you said, his plan B. So he can jump to that. Whereas Paul really has been 100% in, in the Beatles. However, we did talk about the fact that, you know, like when Paul goes forward, he realizes that at some point probably the Liberty, Liberty Bell, he, he knows, he knows, he sees it coming. He does. He does. But I, I don't feel like he's planning that far ahead at this point. Like, I don't think he's, I, I don't think he's planned. What am I going to do when no. the Beatles are over? You know what I no. mean? Like, And I think that he had a lot of anxiety around that too. I think that, you know, the point he yeah. always makes, like, we didn't know what, what to do without each other in terms of we had a lot of songs and, I heard an interview with his cousin, Kate Robbins, who said that, you know, Paul was legitimately really afraid of what was going to come next. They didn't know that there could be second acts and, you know, solo careers. They didn't know, you know, so I, that's potentially one of the reasons why it was a really stressful period for for him going forward is that he didn't have something optimistic to look forward. Like he hadn't built out a new dream yet. Right, 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 right. But I think that one of the things that Linda really brought to Paul was this ability for him to not care as much. You know, she shared this attitude, like, let's get lost. Let's not care so much about what everybody thinks, which I think for him personally was wonderful and freeing. But I Mm -hmm. think that the negative impact of that was that that was her advice to him you know, at, at this critical moment of the breakup when stories were being told and the narrative was being set, which again may have been good for Paul because he got through it and, you know, seems to have rebounded quite well with her help. 
However, they left a vacuum that John and Yoko filled, and they told the story. And they told the story that erased the importance or minimized and devalued the importance of Paul in John's life. And that is the story that really took hold and, you know, continues to take hold in our imagination and in the Beatles story nowadays, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it was absolutely the right decision in terms of his mental health. Uh, I think disengaging with John was necessary at that point, but it absolutely killed him in the media. It, it, it was the nail in his coffin, in a way. And he had been the critical darling for, you know, a certain amount of years, and that pretty much put an end to it. But unfortunately, sometimes in life, you have to make hard decisions like that. And I think for him, I, I mean, I think he chose his own happiness and his family over his career in a way. I don't even know if he knew he was doing that, but I think that's ultimately what he did. He chose his own private happiness over getting good press. Here's the thing, though. So I do feel bad for Paul in this era because the Beatles were treating him badly. Klein was a monster, and then John built this whole narrative about Paul being an awful egomaniac who was jealous of Yoko and wrote granny music that sucked. So I do feel bad for him in that he had to subsequently deal with Wenner and Rolling Stone and Melody Maker when they went all mean girls on him and, yeah. you know, yeah. bashed him for not being cock rock enough and stuff like that. <laughs> right. But ultimately, I don't feel that bad for him because he made it out of this alive and he did say no to Alan Klein. Yep. And he found the love of his life. And after the Beatles, like right after the Beatles, he made a pair of amazing, groundbreaking, influential albums that stand the test of time. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they're amazing. You know, it's right. it's it's interesting because I feel badly for Paul in that he did not want this to happen. And it's, he's sort of being acted upon. You know, he doesn't like Klein, so those are his actions. But, you know, he ultimately did not want the Beatles to break up, and they did. However, I feel sorry for John in this situation because he's just unhappy. Like, Paul's unhappy That's because right. things are being done to him, and it's a situation he doesn't like. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, yes. John is just so deeply unhappy. You know, and that's harder to fix. Yeah, and he never really gets all the way through it. Yeah. To me, I mean, you know, for, from my perspective, Paul is not the loser of this story. Because even though in the early 70s and immediately after the breakup, he had to deal with awful things, being a, a public pariah and being cast as the villain of the Beatles breakup, you know, jean jackets and the rock boys all bought into it 100% continue to, you know, yeah, I was gonna even say, perpetuate it to this day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I feel bad from that point of view, but in the actual reality of his real life, he was happy with Linda and his family. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can see and, that. And yep. as much as all the authors, even today, I mean, they're still trying to hold on to this story. As much as they make it about like, oh, poor Paul, he the Beatles broke up and Paul was the big loser. <laughs> he wasn't the big loser. He actually came out of it better than anyone. He did. He was the one that ended up being emancipated and free. Having a happy, stable marriage, having a having a successful career, doing what he wanted to do. Like having his own vision that no one fucked with. Yeah. And and like no matter how much all these old crusty boomers who can't get enough of that cock rock or whatever think he was like his albums are too artsy for them or whatever. <laughs> right. Those for those first few albums right. like I don't give a shit. I do not give a shit what they think. I love them. Oh, they're ge- <laughs> they're genius, please. Yeah. So this like, this he, is not what he wanted, but then he found new happiness. You know, all of a sudden it gets very sad and depressing for Paul and poor Paul. But in reality, you know, we just discussed Linda. I think that that was such a an important and amazing time of their life. I mean, Linda in Wingspan says that, you know, they spent some of their happiest years there. And so yeah. even though he's got this negativity from outside, he found a lot of joy himself and, and the sense of freedom and emancipation and a new a new form of joy and happiness. Our next episode is all about the Beatles' last studio album, Abbey Road. If you haven't heard it, get out there, stream it, download it, visit your local record shop, get a record, a cassette tape, a CD, whatever you can. Nah, I'm just kidding. I know you all know Abbey Road. It's going to be a blast. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone. This is Diana. If you are enjoying listening to this podcast, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. It will really help other people find the podcast. And I love reading reviews, mostly if they are good. So please leave a good review. Um, Also, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, all under the name Once We Dream Podcast. And you can email us at onesweetdreampodcast at gmail.com. Also, please check out Another Kind of Mind podcast. You can follow Another Kind of Mind in all social channels as Acom Podcast or on Instagram as Another Kind of Mind. You can also reach Another Kind of Mind at acompodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. Look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Bye. <laughs>